So uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I would like to welcome everyone to the Scholar Spotlight brought to you by Global Policy Next Generation. I'm really happy to have Emala Cavalier, who I have been fortunate to meet virtually on several occasions. She has been handling her editorial duty for the Global Policy Next Generation uh, virtually. So today, um, I'm happy that Emma has joined me from a wonderful England to talk about her research. So Emma, by the way of introduction, can you please give us an elevator pitch about your research? Sure. Um, so I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto, and I'm also a research fellow at Durham University in the UK with the Global Policy Institute, um, which is where I'm based here in the UK from sunny England. Um, so my research looks at urban climate and environmental issues and how they've come to be viewed as problems for global governance. So I'm interested in the inclusion of urban sustainability issues on the global agenda. So things like the sustainable development goals inclusion of a goal around sustainable cities and communities, that's SDG 11. Um, the Paris Climate Agreement's emphasis on non-party stakeholders the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's um, special reporting around cities, which is coming up in the next assessment reporting cycle. So the fact that we suddenly see cities represented in global discourse um, is of interest to me in part because global governance has traditionally been the remit of states. Um, and so thinking about how a system accustomed to dealing with states is starting to accommodate um, alternative actors is, is sort of my broad area of interest. Seeing it growing, and so it's very interesting that you're contributing to it and helping shape it in a very interesting directions. I did want to ask you about the motivation for your research and a decision to pursue a PhD. I know that uh, many people that are listening to us today are thinking about doing a PhD, and it would be beneficial for them to hear your story. So Emma, please do let us know. Well, I hope not to disappoint, but I actually came out of my MPhil. Um, I did an MPhil in international relations at Oxford, and I came out of the MPhil really not wanting to go any further. Um, I was pretty well done with, with academia at that point. Um, and they happened to take a position for what was supposed to be a three-month contract over the, well, the Northern Hemispheric summer and the Southern Hemispheric winter. Um, a three-month contract at the University of Cape Town um, looking at energy transitions in emerging economies. And I, I sort of begrudgingly took this position as a way to think about my next steps <laughs> and ended up really loving the research I did there. And my time also happened to intersect with the period of um, continued load shedding or scheduled blackouts in, um, in South Africa at that time. And the research I was doing was looking at energy transitions in emerging economies. I was living through an energy crisis and suddenly it felt like my work, which looked at, at um, various forms of sort of lock-ins and path dependencies that structured responses to clean energy. Um, it really felt like suddenly what I researched was really relevant and at the core of key policy questions um, that everybody was talking about. So needless to say, I signed on to another year of research and then eventually found myself applying to PhD programs. So. It was not a um, foregone conclusion that I would do a PhD whatsoever, but I, I think what motivated me to pursue one was ultimately just, I was still interested in it. 
That's a fabulous journey. The way you see how your research can shape the field that can help people, can help policymakers to make a change. I think this is a fantastic journey into the PhD. And I think you're fortunate to have found this motive in a way that a lot of us are seeking along our <laughs> research careers. So this is great. So given that your path has been very, I would say, very non-traditional in a way, in the same field as you are when they apply for a PhD. Would you recommend them taking uh, some time for research or apply right away? What is your perspective on that? I do think, I mean, I didn't get too far from academia in my, in my two year gap between my master's and my PhD. So I don't know that I'm the least traditional of the pathways, but um, I, did, I do think that time was helpful, um, but I think it was more important that I found something I was really interested in because a PhD is a, is a long slog. And so if you don't have a sort of initial kernel of interest or initial sort of in issue area that really drives you, um, it's gonna be difficult to maintain that motivation. I think another really important thing though is to find um, someone to really think hard about who's best positioned to supervise your work. So I, rather than maybe taking the approach of here are the top X um, programs, I wanna apply for those. I thought really hard about who I wanted to work with because that seemed to me to be much more important that relationship um, with a supervisor and a committee. So that's kind of how I went about it. Um, even without a crystal clear plan of research, I think you can do that by assessing kind of your broad field of interest, but also maybe your theoretical leanings um, that might help you find a good fit for a supervisor, someone who, uh, who might think sort of similarly to you. Um, mm -hmm who can then maybe support support your work. Um, I also called and chatted with every person I wanted to work with. And again, this was, it was really, it was really important to me that I found a good working relationship because I think that is essential to getting through the PhD. Perspective that you shouldn't, you know, call and reach out to the supervisors, but actually you're encouraging people, which is great. I think a lot of people are shy. So I, I did a cold call, that, I'll say that. I, I did email yeah. and arrange phone calls. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> but this is this is a great approach because a lot of people when they're exiting masters, they think they're shy reaching out. And I think what you're saying is actually this is helpful for location and positioning yourself in the field, finding similarly thinking people in the academia. And I think this is very important and very valuable um, as you take on a PhD because it's a it's a long commitment so it's great to find people that you can work with so thank you Emma for that and let's go back to your research um, you work on global governance and climate and environmental issues you mentioned briefly to us what made you interested in the topic but what are some issues that you faced in your research what is the most rewarding thing that you also um, discovered throughout your research and whether you can give us any advice pursuing similar research um, specifically in global governance, climate, environment issue intersection. Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of questions in there, but I think one is, uh, <laughs> I'll start with the, the first ones, which are some issues that I face in my research. Um, I think the difficulties of research in this field is that it's, for one, it can be emotionally exhausting to confront um, to confront climate change every day and to think about the sort of existential threat that it poses to, to present and future generations. And I find this is even more acutely true now that I have a child. And so the question of future generations becomes very poignant. Um, 
But I think practically speaking, it's also a difficult area of research because it's constantly changing. I mean, it's a moving target and we don't have a hugely long history to draw on in our analyses of these issues. So there's, there's no grand tradition of climate governance that we can sort of look at to, to derive conclusions about any particular area of interest. Um, we're, we're really all just making it up as we go and this field is evolving so rapidly. So that can be really difficult um, if you feel like you're on the one hand trying to craft a PhD thesis and on the other hand, the, the focus of research changes, you know, month to month. <laughs> um, mm. That conversation is just so quickly evolving. Um, in terms of rewarding things in my current research, I, I, again, it's really, I think, feeling like my work is centered in an area that I think is important and is a conversation that is incredibly relevant, um, especially now that we're talking about the Green New Deal as a, such a huge area of policymaking um, in North America, but also that sort of similar discourse is trickling around everywhere. Um, it's good to feel day to day like your work can matter, <laughs> which is absolutely yes. Yeah. <laughs> how one feels about their work. <laughs> Um, even if it doesn't feel like it's applied yet to the real world, it sort of exists in your, your computer screen um, to feel like at the very least you're, you're moving in a direction where you want to you know, use your work to contribute. I think that's quite important. Um, and advice for other researchers pursuing similar research. Um, it's, a, yeah, it's a fast paced area of research. I think be prepared to kind of straddle the um, the academic debates as well as the policy debates and, and kind of having to keep up with both of those things simultaneously um, right. is, is something that is challenging, but I think really important to making sure that your work remains sort of at the cutting edge. Absolutely. And you're talking about, you know, the Green New Deal and you also in your questionnaire, you mentioned central role of the cities in sustainable development. Can you elaborate on this? Because we are increasingly in global governance. There's a lot of discourse saying, yes, cities are becoming important and we have all of the books coming on and saying, yes, the centrality of the city is increasing. What does it mean for the climate governance, especially, and how do we understand it? Can you please elaborate, Emma? Yeah, I mean, there's you hear the lines from mayors all the time that um, nations talk while cities act and this sort of thinking that cities mm -hmm. are, are really where the rubber meets the road when it comes to climate policy. But for me, what that actually means is that cities are sort of microcosms for most of the pressing issues we face with regard to how we can or should go about sustainable transformation. So. Researching cities has really highlighted to me how impossible it is to insulate climate or environmental issues from broader kind of social, political, cultural structures and questions and how consequently fraught sustainability policymaking is. So you can't simply make sustainable policies without considering the kind of future you want to live in. And to me, in my study of cities, that seems to be, that seems to be kind of what cities represent to me. Um, you know, everything from transit choices to biodiversity planning kind of indicates or moves us towards a direction uh, that we want the city to evolve in, um, speaks to what a city values, to who belongs and who doesn't. Um, so take for instance, renewable energy targets in cities. You can meet these targets in a number of ways. 
on the one hand, their response could be very status quo. Renewable energy could just be sort of added into the existing mix, um, energy mix of existing utility companies. So kind of the same, roughly same looking market with just sort of new energies plopped in. But on the other hand, you can see the shift to renewables as being an opportunity for what climate justice advocates called energy democracy with sort of new models of ownership being introduced. Things like community solar, um, net metering, these sorts of things that can completely transform energy systems and also have market social and economic effects. And suddenly you have this you know, renewable energy target and the pathways to meeting that target can entail radically different futures. Um, so this is part of the conversation, as you said, about the Green New Deal, that these, you know, we can choose to make these explicit linkages between climate and sustainability policies and social inequity ends. We can choose to be environmental or we can choose to be environmentally sustainable without considering social and economic sustainability dimensions. Um, so to me, at the studying cities is ultimately studying those debates and battles because those are occurring every day at the city level already. So the, the sustainable future is being crafted now. Um, and so cities are kind of, yeah, to me, ground zero for the construction of those futures. This is a really good conception for it, Emma. This is great to hear from you actually, seeing, seeing the centrality of cities anyway and in the, in the whole development of the policy. So this is great. And it's, it's fascinating because you give us, and Emma, thank you actually for writing a blog post for us with a list of readings that we should uh, do on the issue. And you also mentioned a few on, in your questionnaire uh, there is a lot of scholars that you say we should read on climate change, critical scholarship and governance. So what particular scholars you would like to highlight in the podcast and what influences have they had on your academic career and your work at the moment? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question, because to me, I think about scholars that inform my work in of sort of two ways. For one, there's the sort of more immediate, immediately relevant field. So people who work on climate and environmental governance, um, some of whom I work with, Matt Hoffman, Stephen Bernstein, Harriet Bulkley. So their influence has been immense. Um, Matt and Stephen have um, a theory of decarbonization, which relies on metaphors about fractals, um, in which they talk about decarbonization as being self-similar at multiple scales. And, and that really got me thinking a lot about how the structure of the international system um, is important to think about when considering how to capture dynamics around sort of cities and global governance and climate change. So yeah, they, they've really kind of opened my eyes to thinking about structure more critically. Harriet's work is obviously leading in the field of cities and climate change and taking critical approaches. And so working with her has made me keenly aware of a lot of the sort of structural equity justice issues that, um, that, are being debated at the city level, but also thinking more critically about what the city represents to other actors. So thinking about how other actors use the city towards their sort of own ends, um, that they govern climate change through cities. So that's been yeah, hugely influential to how I think about these issues. But I think beyond climate and environmental people, um, broader kind of critical constructivist works are have influenced in me from um, Finnamore, Ruggie, Adler, 
Adi Klotz, um, Christian Marie Smith, they're all, they've all been really influential to my thinking, not so much obviously for the empirical questions around climate and cities, but I think actually for um, thinking about my sensibility kind of when it comes to international relations. So rather than asking causal why questions um, or what are the effects of kind of questions, I'm actually, I tend to really ask how possible or how accomplished questions. So how is the global governance of urban climate change accomplished or how have we come to have consensus around this set of policy approaches rather than that set? So I think I'm yeah quite indebted to that area of research for generating my sort of inclinations towards how I think about global politics. This is fantastic. I mentioned scholarship, it's very important and sometimes we're missing those linkages. So this is great that I'm looking forward to reading your dissertation and once it's com coming out, right? <laughs> so going back to, uh, to the few questions that I have on the list, um, you, in your questionnaire, you mentioned that your research critically questions global understanding and framings of urban climate and environmental issues. And so um, based on our discussion, I wanted to ask you what changes do you envision policymakers implementing to pursue in those things that you highlighted should be critical on our minds at the moment? Hmm. I mean, <laughs> I can answer it as what changes do I envision policymakers making or what changes would I wish for policymakers to make? And I think uh, the former would bring out a lot of my cynicism. So maybe we'll go with <laughs> what changes do I hope policy implementers, That's a good idea. policymakers would implement. Um, yeah, and I think a big one, my kind of pie in the sky wish is that policymakers could better conceptualize and act with medium and long-term um, interests in mind. So. I mean, the public policy literature is rife with examples and theories of all the ways in which structural and institutional incentives lead to short-term thinking by policymakers. Everything from election cycles to, um, you know, punctuated equilibrium theory in which you have limited attention spans and cycles of crisis that keep policymakers kind of constantly putting out fires and never really taking the time to reflect and think and sort of be on their front nose. You know, we have lots of evidence that short-term thinking dominates policymaking. Um, but what this means is that we're left with a major disconnect between how policy is currently made and how policy needs to be made in order to you know, truly confront issues around sustainability. So short-term actions, high future discount rates, these are really the antithesis to swift and comprehensive action on sustainable transformations and decarbonization. And if I could wave a magic wand and shift world <laughs> values of policymakers to consider long-term thinking, that would be great. Um, yeah. And actually on this point, <laughs> I have recently been reading Ministry of the Future um, by Kim Stanley Robinson. It's a sci-fi book. Um, it's about a, the Paris Climate Agreement and the institution that's supposed to have emerged out of the Paris Climate Agreement called the Ministry for the Future. And I hate to say it, but Kim Stanley Robinson is going to write a way better political science dissertation than I ever will, because this book does a great job of actually highlighting exactly this issue and explaining, doing everything from sort of illustrating policymaking and the difficulties of incorporating future thinking into policymaking, and then also somehow explaining 
environmental economics and discount rates to you. So if you need a book recommendation, <laughs> I go to that piece of sci-fi more than I go to my own work. <laughs> Amazing. And this is great that you're connecting your work with, with the sci-fi books out there because I think it's, it's good to go beyond. I haven't sometimes you think about picking up books from outside the field and you have your desk, you know, with copies and copies of scholars. So it's great that somebody else can go on and write something that is, you know, out there and it's explanatory. And it's great yeah. that you're trying to recommendation sci-fi, the climate yeah. science fiction if you're in this if you're in this field. Um, Fantastic. They can be more insightful than anything. Awesome. And easy to read, right? Without any references, I I hope. <laughs> <laughs> very accessible for a fact. So um, going back to, to the early academic advice, you mentioned something that I find very interesting and curious uh, when I read your questionnaire for us. You mentioned that uh, your advice for early career academics is to remember you can always say no, but, and I love the but, but be open to the opportunities. So this is, I think this is fascinating because you're, you know, we always hear, oh, you can say no, but then being open to opportunities is actually something very interesting. Then you always can say yes, basically, if you want to, right? So how do you envision this being implemented by practice by other scholars? And do you have any resources that early scholars should rely on, especially pursuing such an advice? Is there something you would recommend? Yeah, I guess this advice really comes from the fact that I the biggest piece of advice I hear to, to early career researchers is say no, because we're often inundated with the kinds of things that will detract from us working on our dissertations, uh, which I obviously prioritize your dissertation, that is important. But um, to me saying yes has been sort of the way in which I've written my dissertation. <laughs> sort of one opportunity after another has been this sort of messy journey to dissertation writing for me. So that's kind of where I'm coming from when I, when I give that piece of advice, which is that like saying yes can oftentimes, even if it's not like immediately strategically obvious why you should say yes, even if you're kind of not clear what it's going to be. For me, I'm kind of guided by what I'm interested in. And if it's vaguely in the field that I work on and it seems interesting, usually I'm going to say yes, which some days I curse myself for doing. So maybe <laughs> take my advice with a grain of salt. But um, yeah, it's, I can't say it's crafted out of any sort of deliberate or thoughtful place. It's very much seat of my pants decision-making. So I don't know that I can point to resources which brought me to this approach, but um, I think just in general, it's good to be practically immersed in the field that you're interested in. Um, in non-virtual times, that means you would maybe go to relevant conferences and network with people who are in your field. So for me, it's things like the Earth System Governance Conference or ISA. Um, but I think another one we can do now, and that's much more sort of low cost, is following people whose work you admire on Twitter. And it doesn't even have to be just, you know, empirically people in your field, but it could also be people whose use theoretical approaches you find interesting. Because it's always interesting to me on Twitter to see how those people think about the world more generally. Um, and they also might be tweeting stories you could be interested in or tweeting opportunities. You know, I had a friend who learned about her postdoc through Twitter. So it can be a very really useful tool if used widely, but um, do try and avoid getting sucked into doom scrolling on Twitter. So I'd say, say use with caution. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. This is really good advice. I think with especially pointing up to Twitter and saying that it may have resources. There's so many people that we can follow actually on Twitter that provide career resources, you said postdoc resources and intellectual inspiration. I've been following so many people that are writing excellent stuff. And so seeing them and following their work has been absolutely enlightening, especially in the current world where we're all locked in into our tiny rooms, you know, Twitter. <laughs> Twitter could be a good friend. I actually had someone give a good piece of Twitter advice, which was um, looking up, you know, in the search function, you can actually, when you search for something, you can narrow it down to people you follow. And so if, for instance, you wanted to get a sort of, how are people responding to maybe this event or um, even for, you know, I I kind of did this when I was prepping for a round table at ISA this year around um, equity and diversity issues, just kind of looking up, EDI or what, what are people tweeting around these sorts of issues, um, whether it may be think pieces they're pointing to or sort of rants they're going on. For EDI, it was largely a series of rants, but for other issues, it could be a little more easy. Um, but I thought that was a really clever piece of advice I got from someone yeah. that could, could be sort of useful if you're wanting, just starting out in an area, you're like, you know, are people talking about, what are people saying about the Green New Deal who I follow, for instance? Fantastic. Now I'm learning too, Emma. (laughs) This is good. (laughs) This is very useful. Right. So before we wrap up, I wanted to go back to your book recommendation for uh, Harry Bunkley and Peter Newell's Governing Climate Change, a 2010 book. And I think it's a phenomenal book, but can you give us a bit more why you picked that title over everything else you just mentioned, all of the sci-fi books which are fascinating Why this book? Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't as deep into the Kim Stanley Robinson book as I am now, so maybe I'll <laughs> change my answer. But um, no, I think this, this book is a great one. In part, I mean, I, I, in part I picked it because it was used as a textbook, actually, in a course I TA'd for on an intro to climate politics, and it was really effective to teach from. <laughs> um, and I think that's because it said, say, a lot of the empirical need-to-knows, so, you know, diplomatic treaty history, this sort of major moments of climate history are are set out really well. But it also gives a really good introduction to the various debates that we have conceptually about how to think about climate politics. So it sort of introduces you to questions of institutional design and global governance approaches. What is global governance as an approach even? Um, So I find myself even now returning to it again and again when I feel like I need to zoom out from my own work a bit and situate myself within a broader conversation um, on climate governance. And yeah, I I think it's just a really effective sort of scene setting book um, if you're really first getting involved in this space. So this is fantastic. Thank you, Emma, for that. I, I have enjoyed this conversation. I wish we could spend more time and I can ask more and more questions. But for the interest of time, uh, I thank you so much for joining us today. And this has been terrific. Thank you for the advice. I think there has been a lot of learning for the early career researchers, as well as those way down the line uh, from their PhD to master. So thank you for all of the amazing advice and for sharing your work with us. Of course, happy to be here.